to the Season 6 finale of Composer Quest. I'm your host in Minneapolis, Charlie McCarran, and in this show I talk with all sorts of creative people to find out how to write better music. This episode is a special roundtable discussion with the creative team behind the upcoming film Twin Cities, which I composed the music for. You'll get to hear insights on film sound from the perspective of a director, an editor, a sound designer, and me, the composer. It's a valuable talk for anyone who's interested in indie filmmaking, so I hope you enjoy it. Also, stick around till the end of the episode for another edition of Charlie's Music Production Lessons, where I break down some of my film cues from a music theory perspective. Just a couple announcements before we get into it. If you're in Minnesota, join us for the third annual Minkino Film Score Fest this summer. We've paired up filmmakers and composers to collaborate on short films, and the resulting scores will be performed at the screening by a live orchestra. That's on Thursday, July 28th at 7 p.m. Central at the Science Museum of Minnesota. Hope to see you there. If you can't make it in person, you can still stream the event at ComposerQuest.com, again at 7 p.m. Central on July 28th. Congrats to those of you who've finished your films and scores, and good luck if you're still doing some last-minute polishing. As always, thanks to my wonderful patrons who made this sixth season happen, and thanks again to my Kickstarter backers for funding the upcoming final season of Composer Quest. The next time you hear from me, I'll be kicking off my world tour. I can't wait. Looking forward to sharing this adventure with you starting in September. Now, let's get to our discussion about film sound. I'm here with the team behind Twin Cities, the feature film. Um, so if you guys want to introduce yourselves. I'm Mike Hallenbeck. I'm the sound designer. Uh, David Ash, the writer and director. Jason Schumacher, producer and editor. Yeah. So Jason and I have been working on films together for several years. and Yeah, yeah. it's kind of our third project in a row. Um, we did Sad Clown, which was and then, uh, kind of interesting because we were we, you arranged uh, some rearranged some classical pieces. Then you did a do- we did a doc called Beyond the Thrill, and now we did Twin Cities, which are all sort of three very different projects mm-hmm. with three pretty different scores. Although I can hear similar threads through all of them in your work. So hmm. yeah. And um, then Jason and I helped Dave with the previous feature film. Um, yeah, Dave, do you want to talk about that film a bit? Yeah, so the previous one was 2021. Um, finished that about two years ago. Did some festivals. was just up in Duluth last weekend at that festival, and we actually got distribution on that earlier this year, which is cool. Um, and yeah, Charlie did the score on that, which was kick-ass. We can talk about that later. And then Jason did the editing and the DP work, which was also kick-ass. So uh, that was that feature. And then as soon as I got done with that, I took an hour break, and then I started writing Twin Cities. Um, <laughs> uh, I think it was an hour and a half, actually. But I, I took a little break, and then I started writing that. And then we started uh, production on that in... February of last year, and we shot uh, 22 shooting days between February and July, so well, once or twice a week for five months. So this is June of 16, so probably the last, uh, I don't know, year, 
pretty much been working on post for this, believe it or not. Yeah. And then Mike joined the team to... Uh, yeah, yeah, I met Dave at the Twin Cities Film Festival last October or so. Yeah. Yeah. So Jason has kindly prepared some questions to kind of kick off the conversation. I'm going to do my best uh, impersonation of a Hollywood Reporter and uh, get this roundtable going. So we sort of started scoring and sound design. I guess you were mostly dialogue cutting while Charlie began composing. Uh, Mike, do you prefer to have the score done by the time you start designing, or what is, what's the optimal process for you? It is really nice to have the score done before I start the sound design process, but that's rarely the case. And it's also enjoyable to be a part of evaluating the score as it's happening, which was definitely the, the case here. So, Well, I know when we initially sat down, we did kind of talk through all of us mm-hmm. where, where the score might kind of take charge or where we might use just more sound design. Yep. Yeah, yeah, we did a spotting session all together, which was actually kind of a kind of a novelty compared to other projects I've worked on, you know. It was actually it was nice to be able to talk with everybody all together um before anything was even done. All right, and for the listeners that don't know, a spotting session is A uh, spotting session is sitting down and kind of talking through all the beats of the movie um and just sort of brainstorming about where you want certain things to happen i mean i'm i'm coming at it from an Mm -hmm. audio perspective so you know just talking about different sound effects you want to use different sound design techniques you want to deploy different aspects of the score uh, where you want music where you don't want music those are those are big things yeah and as much as having notes from you guys the director and producer having notes does help beforehand but I think that session was really like when it cemented in our minds as we were watching together mm-hmm. and just individually taking notes and then at the end kind of figuring out, oh, this point is great for this and mm-hmm. that. Right. And then we basically built a cue sheet, a spreadsheet of what, what we'd all talked about, what, where, you know, if certain sound effects weren't obvious, where we talked about including those and where score would live or not. Mm-hmm. So. And Dave, I know that you had some pretty specific ideas about sound design versus music. Do you want to talk about that? Is that- yeah, um, you know, any given scene or story beat, I usually, my first impulse is to get as far as we can or try to make it work with just, you know, manipulating the sound design as much as possible um, for certain scenes. And if you can get to the effect you want to that way, um, then not scoring it. Because I think it's a more organic feeling, or can be for certain moments in a scene and within a movie, to not know you're being led sort of by the hand with the audio. If it's done properly and subtly enough, you know, I think you, know, you can really get in, you know, a deeper emotion from the audience by just uh, not knowing that, again, that they're getting feelings that are almost subliminal from the sound design. So, I mean, I really, you know, my first inclinations to try to do it that way and if if we can't get there that way uh, within the scene anyway um to bring scoring in uh you know scoring I, I do like scoring on transitions because i think that it can get you from story beat to story beat and mm-hmm. not step on the sort of intrinsic emotion in a scene yeah. um but if not if you can't get there with the, the sound design there's definitely places in, in twin cities we can talk about where 
where we couldn't get there, I, I felt with the sound design and the scoring really helped it. And I really also like scoring that is, you know, not only not what you're expecting, but almost the opposite of what you're expecting. A good example is like in, you know, Reservoir Dogs, where they're cutting the guy's ear off and you got this great, mm-hmm. was it stuck in the middle with you on the Stay radio? Yeah. Something about that just works yep. in a very intense way. And that wasn't where I kind of got, you know, my inclination to do that necessarily, but that's a, just an offhand example for the listeners of how that can work really effectively where it throws the audience who's used to hearing a certain kind of score for a certain beat or a certain really intense moment and hearing the opposite. And it gives them a feeling there's more going on in the film than just what's going on in front of them. So yeah. that's kind of... It helps a, allude to that broader, the, the subtext of the scene. Right. Yeah. And I think we talked about this, Jason, in your podcast interview when I asked you about this and like you were talking about like Don't how... Don't me what I said. <laughs> well, I think you were talking about how you should use music when it needs to add another element that's not obvious through the acting or things when there's subtext going on right. emotionally yeah. or something yeah. like that. Right. Because yeah. you don't want the you don't want a forceful score that's just kind of telling the audience how they should feel. I think we really gain momentum once we realize the score needed to follow sort of the main character's feelings throughout. It couldn't, even though it did contrast in some ways, it still kind of ebbed and flowed with how that character was feeling at the time in the scene. So that kind of puts you more in the headspace of that character when needed. Mm-hmm. So, so it helps the audience in that way without really forcing it to be like, be sad, be right, happy, right, right. be whatever. It's the last thing you want, actually, is that. Right, because yeah. the audience are very <clears throat> in tune to being forced. Mm-hmm. They almost need to get there on their own. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, and and Dave, you have a real uh, penchant for stripping things away as well. There's a, there are at least a couple scenes in this movie where we have all these crowd sounds and stuff, and there were points where you like you, you were talking about Walter Murch and his his tendency to kind of dial back on certain elements, mm-hmm. e- even in a non realistic way, and and sort right. of take the crowd entirely out of the scene until we just have two people sitting in a room talking, even mm-hmm. though you can see other people there. Right the sound of, of the crowd goes away and it's just these two people yeah the scenes where we've got you know the the walla or the background noise kind of fades away as the scene gets more intense and that's if you're in the mind of that character that's kind of where you're going you're getting so focused on the other person and how you're feeling in that moment that you don't hear everything else um or the the, the bookstore scene where you know we have a really intense love at first sight moment for just a couple seconds and the the background noise and the background music just fades down to almost nothing that's if you're that person experiencing that you don't you're only thinking about looking in the other person's eyes you're not thinking about anything else at all mm-hmm. well and that's a conversation that often comes up in sound design because of the way our ears in in tune with our brain sort of work is do you sound design it realistically and let your ears do the work of filtering things out or as a sound designer do you do the sort of pre-filtering because our, our ears are constantly you know you, you can pick out a conversation in a crowd and if that's what you're brain is focusing on that's kind of what you're taking in mm-hmm. even yeah. though there's a lot of other sounds going on so yep yeah yeah and and dave made it pretty clear that he was looking for sound design to be used psychologically a lot of the time uh that that i, w- I wasn't supposed to look at uh, the real world necessarily as the template for what was going on but to think of it more as a dream mm-hmm. which sometimes it kind of is in a way not mm-hmm. to give too yeah. much away but, yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that, that reminds me of um, 
what was the Mark Zuckerberg movie? Social, Social Network. Network. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. there's scenes in there. I'm curious what you think about these, Mike, because where it's like the music and crowd, they're in a club or something, and it's so loud you can barely perceive what yep. they're actually saying. Yep. And it's a good effect for that scene. But, yeah, I've, I've yeah. thought about that scene a lot, actually, because it, it's... They're, ye- they're, they're pretty much yelling, but the music still sounds to me louder than... You know, it, it is like you're in a club, and I, I I really would like to watch that again to to get a sense of how they did it. You know, there's probably side chain compression going on or something like that. But when well, shooting scenes like that is always interesting on set because you have you you're adding the music in later, so you yep. just have to have these actors imagining mm-hmm. that there's loud music and yelling, <laughs> yeah. and uh, it yep. might look a little weird uh, initially, but. And a bunch of people in the background dancing to nothing. Yeah, right, right, right. because you have to. Yeah, right. You have to separate your sounds. So you can design them later. Yeah. What do people usually do for those dance scenes? Do they have something like timing people? Sometimes really they'll start softly? a song and then cut it off on action, so they'll mm-hmm. get people yep. into a rhythm and hope that they can kind of stay in that rhythm. Mm-hmm. That's something I've seen done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Or they'll shoot scenes where people are dancing to an actual piece of music and then just let them remember what it is later. I've read about. Uh, Apparently, when they were making Saturday Night Fever, the soundtrack hadn't been recorded when they shot hmm. the movie. So, John Travolta, I guess, said that he was dancing to you know Stevie Wonder and <laughs> stuff oh. like that because wow. the Bee Gees stuff hadn't yeah. been, they hadn't even chosen the band yet. So, I don't know if they had to tempo match everything or what they did. But a lot of that could have just come down to editing too. Once they had the song, then editing. Yeah kind of hoping that his moves and stuff line up mm-hmm. and a lot of the time when you watch stuff like that the dancing doesn't match up to the beat anyway and again your brain wants to you know wants to match everything up so that's that's a very happy thing for a sound designer that your brain wants to make everything <laughs> sync up yeah except if the voice is the dialogue track gets shifted a little bit yeah then even if it's like a millisecond off, it feels mm-hmm. really yeah. odd. Yeah. If the no, voice doesn't match up. Like, yeah, yeah. In terms of like motion. And I, was yeah. telling, I was telling Mike about this when we were sitting down the other day. About, <laughs> I was reading about some study they did, and, and they, they showed a group of folks a scene with the perfect syncing to the frame. And they showed another group a, you know, a scene, and it was like off by just like one frame. Hmm. And the audio was off. The audio was off by one frame. It was okay. off by one frame. And they test them afterwards, and for some reason, the, the control group that or the group that had it off by one frame, they thought something was like very nefarious about the characters. <laughs> oh, <laughs> they couldn't they place just, why. Right. They didn't just know didn't why trust it was. Them. They didn't, that was, it was all about trust, exactly. It was, yeah. uh, it was a trust yeah. experiment. And the ones that was off, that watched the, the scene that was off by frame, they were like, I don't know why, but I just don't trust these people. <laughs> so I told Mike, something's off about something's them. Something's off about them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. They couldn't even place that. I was like, I don't, I don't yeah. trust them. Actually, I think they had all these elaborate explanations too that had nothing to do with uh, being off a mm. frame. They just invented these things in their brain wow. about why these people were just nefarious and untrustworthy. Where the other group were like, "Oh, they're just totally cool people." Yeah, that's Weird. that's the subliminal part that I'm talking about that mm. kind of screws with you. Yeah. Well, we are pretty fortunate to have good source sound from all of our sets where we didn't. I don't. We didn't have to do any ADR replacing, really, do we? I did one ADR line of Megan Course, the, oh, sure, the, the nurse. nurse. That was because she was ripping off one of those Velcro um, armbands. She was ripping off a Velcro armband, and there was the just something about it. Was, it was lav audio, and it just, just to me, it just really sounded like lav audio, and the sound effect didn't help at all. But um, For people who may not know, could you quickly just 
explain ADR and what a LAV is? ADR stands for Automatic Dialogue Recording. It's not really automatic, but <laughs> <laughs> some people think it stands for All Dialogue is Ruined. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and ADR is, is also called looping because it used to be done uh, with a with a tape loop, and the the actor would stand there and say the line over and over again. This is in post where you come back, you maybe have bad audio of something, and then they have to re-record. Yeah, yeah, you have you have flawed audio, so you have the uh, the actor go into a studio with a a really good mic, or actually you want to use the same kind of mic used on set if you can. Um, The actor redoes the performance in post, which is pretty challenging for an actor to do, and you kind of go line by line, play each line in a loop, and have them re-perform it. Which is uh, a tedious process, to be sure, but on big studio movies, they'll do the entire film that way. They'll go back and redub the entire film. Especially an action film or something where there's a lot of other elements that are interfering with the sound on set, yep. like a wind machine or yep. something like that, yeah. or environment. Yeah, and it also helps, too, um, if you're going to export the film to a variety of different markets, because that way you can just take the audio completely out, start over again, put the sound effects and sound design in and have the dialogue be a completely different element because that way you can dub it into as many different languages as you want right a lot lot of distributors will want you to deliver the music and effects as an isolated track Mm -hmm. and then the dialogue as an isolated track in case they decide they want to redub yep yeah so So uh, which we we just learned the hard way on (laughs) 2021 that the uh so i i was actually editing the sound for that but that was like we didn't really have a dedicated sound design track. Um, and we realized that we were mixing in <laughs> the dialogue, the foley, and some random sound effects into one export. And then mm-hmm. later, now that that's gotten distribution, we ran into the snag of, oh, they wanted the dialogue separate from all mm-hmm. that. And it's Learned from too our much mistakes, of a mess. Uh, yeah. The filmmakers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what, did, what did you do? Well, Charlie peeled it apart. We were here. A few a couple months ago, and because uh, I had to deliver M and E tracks to these guys, mm. um, music and effects. Yes, for the audience, music and effects. Yeah, so we were able to peel apart the onion, right, and get to the various components of the wow. onion. So yeah, yeah, fun, fun. Yeah, so. it was pretty minimal on sound design, anyways. Though, yeah. So uh-huh. yeah. I'm trying to remember. We did another ADR. I can't remember what it was. Very we mostly, for this yeah, we we mostly didn't have to because we had Owen Brafford doing the sound. Owen, uh, yeah. <laughs> shout out to Owen. Well, and there's yeah. there's some directors too. Like I've heard Christopher Nolan tries to do zero to as little ADR as possible too. Hmm. Yep, which that's pretty I mean, amazing if you can actually do that. Yeah, yeah. especially with an action yeah. like Batman. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, I've heard that uh, the Hurt Locker was. Zero to very little, really? so, which, which again is amazing, amazing. since yeah. there's so yeah. much of it that's exterior and yeah. in the in the bomb suit too. Yeah. But I guess the they wanted desert. the sound of the. I think so. Yeah, but a, a lot of a lot of the time they'll redo helmet stuff, like in Prometheus. I know that that's hmm. that's all ADR too. But so, like anyway. when you're mixing, when you so take me through the initial process. You do like a dialogue cut where you kind of balance out just the things people are saying. And then maybe some of the room tone before you kind of get into design. And when you're doing that, what is your sort of balance between using the lav mic, which is the the mic that's on the actor, or the boom mic that's floating above? Yeah, it it, it would be uh, I, 
I would prefer to do a dialogue pass before the sound design pass. What usually happens is I wind up doing everything all at the same time. But uh, <laughs> but yes, that's a good question. I, you know, when you're when you're putting the dialogue together, you go through and just decide which mic you want to use for each clip. And generally speaking, I'll go through and try to find the best take of each line. So it's it's not as much about which mic it is. It's more about the clarity and, and articulation and, and the general sound. But, yeah, I mean, you wind up kind of having to match, you know. Are you mixing the two together the sometimes? Sometimes, yeah. And you you wind up, you know, filtering things to, to match at times. And um, a lot of the time there are disjunct room tone identities between clips. And so you're trying to kind of balance each of them out. You know, I... I tend to be, as a dialogue editor, I tend to prefer boom when possible. Hmm. Um, it just sounds more like a movie mm-hmm. to me. But sometimes it's just about, okay, well, that's the clip that works, so that's mm-hmm. what we're going to use. And and this film was really challenging because it's it's largely a dialogue-oriented film. You know, an awful lot of the movie is people sitting in an empty space having a conversation, and there's maybe there's a little something going on in the background, but... You know, everything. When you're doing stuff that's really sound effects heavy, it's a lot easier in terms of polishing everything up. Because if you have sound effect, sound effect, sound effect, sound effect, you don't have to worry nearly as much about the, right. you know, what's going on with the dialogue track because you're not really going to hear diff- it. And it's, a group, it's a bunch of different things happening where yeah, with yeah. the dialogue cut, you have to make a person's voice um, sound consistent throughout. Yep. Hmm. And sometimes the, the volume of people's voices. Mm. You know, varies so dramatically that you have to EQ and kind of. Yep. Otherwise, stuff like that takes the audience out of the movie, which is why yep. the dialogue editing is so important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and things are shot from different angles, um, so you'll hear, you know, you'll be hearing a completely different background from one standpoint than you are from the other. And sometimes things are shot on different days or months apart or whatever, and you know, somebody has a cold in one shot and they own <laughs> in another, and, yeah. and it's funny too because. You'll get, you know, way down the rabbit hole of a certain scene and just think, oh, this is a disaster. This is terrible. And then you come back a week later and listen to it like, oh, this is fine. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because you're not, yeah. you know, you're not like listening to every little last <laughs> grain of it anymore. I, I realize now as a filmmaker, I'm, my ears are much more in tune with the world around me. Mm-hmm. I think of the, a lot of the people that don't live on film sets don't realize how just terrible the world sounds when <laughs> run, yeah. through, run through a microphone you know there's so many distracting things that when you put them into a movie if you let all that stuff through it takes you out of the movie yep ironically enough even though all that stuff's realistically mm-hmm. there the air conditioner the fans the planes yep. going mm-hmm. by and all this other stuff the neighbors walking right i remember yep. being on the bus one time and thinking uh hearing a guy next to me talking and thinking his voice wasn't eq'd for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I need a vacation. It's <laughs> <laughs> amazing. All right, I want to s- let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the score. Yeah, I know Dave was real concerned with the score blending in with the sound design and the dialogue and everything else, and not drawing too much attention to itself, but still being there to kind of be a thread through the movie, and also to tie some themes together when one scene comes up that alludes back to another scene or something like that, which is fairly common in in films when you know certain 
plot threads or whatever tie back to one another. You kind of do something similar with the music. So I'm just curious as we, how you, you, Charlie, decided on instrumentation and all that. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think my first instinct was to use very subtle synth sounds because, I mean, from the tracks that I had done for 2021, um, that was really the style Dave liked a lot for those scenes. ambiguous sounds real subtle like you can't place it as like oh that's a flute or Mm -hmm. that's a violin or whatever those are just good for setting mood As we went along, we started realizing that that isn't the solution for every scene. Mm -hmm. So we kind of branched out and started to, well, one one of the pieces of score that that was really fun was doing a guitar piece that was based on a scene where there's an an acoustic guitar player up on stage. Played by you. Played by me. <laughs> so, I'm blurred out, but that's me no, playing guitar. That. That's probably the best acting in the film, actually. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't tell Clarence that. Um, <laughs> second best. Yeah, that was when we got Charlie to make a cameo as a musician. Yeah. So. Nailed it. Yeah, so that, that scene worked really well just because then I knew my score could be just the tuning sounds from mm-hmm. live on stage into like a finger-picking thing. some music anyways so I just made it kind of reverb and echo out and then become like electric guitar into the next scene played around with in the past too is music that is happening in a scene because there's a musician or a radio or something making a natural transition into score Mm -hmm. that's something we did with sad clown as well Uh, a short film we did where it sounds like something's coming over the pa system and then it kind of slips into being the actual score over the film yeah yeah that was fun (laughs) it's like carnival music sort of and then becomes kind of dark at the end. <laughs> right. Well, the last three films you and I have worked on have had very different arrangements. Yeah. Sad Clown was a lot of, like, like woodwinds and stuff. 
Mm-hmm. You sold yeah. me on bassoon. Bassoon and like, clarinet. Yeah. I don't know about this bassoon stuff. Yeah. <laughs> it worked out. It was great. Did you have um, specific models in mind when you were working on this score in terms of inspiration? Were there other films that you were thinking of? Uh, I don't know. Not really. Um, right on. I mean, Jason and Dave had sent me some score ideas, which helps mm-hmm. like always just get me thinking mm-hmm. about like what instrumentation and mood they were thinking of. Um, yeah, we were using some temp from Upstream Color, is that correct? There was one piece from Drive that, that we from had Drive, as a temp yeah, track. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for the the ending. What was that from Drive? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. I thought that was Upstream Color. Okay. Yeah. That was a perfect mood for the ending mm-hmm. that you picked out, Jason. Because you were saying that kind of just helped you think about it as you were editing, too, right. right? So, yeah, sometimes an editor needs to drop a piece of other music before the score is done just to know the rhythm of the scene or something and imagine a score there and it also helped just to kind of convey my editing idea to dave because obviously getting the ending we tried a bunch of different Mm -hmm. things and had to get make sure we got it right and so having temp score in there just kind of helped fill it out and make made sure that the edit kind of felt right Mm -hmm. and uh, i think one thing that was pretty helpful that I'm sure doesn't happen in too many films is that we had, we actually had like a scoring session where I was kind of scoring on the spot mm-hmm. while Dave and Jason were there, like providing feedback and ideas as we went. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We had a couple of those and those are actually some of the most productive sessions. Right. Even though like, it's a little bit unnerving. Um, <laughs> scoring on the fly. <laughs> yeah. And having people yeah. like, argue about it behind you. Yeah. <laughs> As I'm like, just recorded one line. So that was tough. But <laughs> was like, it, it was. Uh, let me like add this little thing. Yeah. Well, when we told you to cover your ears when we gave each other feedback, that was probably awkward for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting too because you would. Uh, that didn't happen. <laughs> Not to my recollection. No. It was a joke. Um, but. You know, trying certain things, and sometimes it was just a matter of moving the score up or down an octave, or yeah. or using a slightly different MIDI sample or instrument. Yeah, where the score, you know, felt totally wrong, or something was just drawing too mm. much attention to itself, or it wasn't quite working. And then it was like, well, what if we bring it down an octave? And then all of a sudden, it sits right in there, nice, yep. and it's perfect. So, mm-hmm. yeah, and like there was one scene I remember where I was, it was all synth, and uh, but. I think all it needed was just a bass synth sound, mm-hmm. just to ground it. Some lower tones. And mm-hmm. that, yeah. So it re- that's when that live scoring session is helpful, because right. it's like I could have worked on this for hours right. myself and not found exactly what you wanted. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's, a, it's really hard um, to... I've told this to try before. It's hard for me to like relay sounds in an email or 
you know, almost even talking about it. You kind of have to just like either send samples, which we did some of, and you know, you do that, and then I try, you try to think of like words that a couple of keywords, and the the word the the combination I kept coming up for what I wanted for a good part of the film was this, this warm slash sad. It was like both warm and sad, and that was kind of what I I was pushing for because there's a lot of transitional parts in the film where you know that's kind of the feeling you're like that's eh, I don't want it to be just sad I don't want it to just be warm and uplifting I want it to be kind of almost uh poignant in a way and it's hard to say just create something poignant so that was a word combination I came up with was warm sad mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was like I want one you know I, I kind of was like this is one of the sessions we had was like I, you know, I had three different things I want I want Variations on warm, sad. <laughs> I wanted the stuff we did like in the doctor's office in the the beginning, which was like just almost very um, anxious. Well, oh, the first one is happy. But yeah, for, yeah, yeah. And then uh, there was the the stuff in the doctor's office, and when John's in the car in the beginning, which is almost like a horror score. It was like very mm-hmm. very anxious, very anxious. Yeah. So it was like I, you know where I started to feel a lot of traction is when we kind of broke it down to these three beats, and it was like well. Variations on this will be used in this kind of part of the film where it's we want the warm sad. <laughs> then we want, you know, something that's gonna be a variation on that for happy that we can use in different ways, and then we want something that's uh, almost scary soundtrack. Yeah. That's where I felt it was coming together. So we like really until we bucketed in those three different buckets, I really was felt kind of lost in this process. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. No, that, this, that's you know a good, that's a good point, because yeah. I did I did too in ways because once you get it down to right. like these are the core three Beats. emotions exactly you're yeah. going for, then I can just copy, basically right. copy the same instruments and start do a little bit of a variation right for the to fit the scene better. But it's a lot easier once you put it into that. Yep. Yeah. Well, yeah. like a, a a big musical would have like a big reprise of that theme, and so it's like the the super duper subtle version of that. When a cur- when a certain thread comes up again, you use you know similar entrance instruments or a similar melody. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really helpful where you bring the director in too to say, well, this is kind of where this character is dealing with this thing again. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it's cool to watch a film too, because to, we did this in the last two films. It was you get a, a motif in your head as an audience, and then it comes back again. There's something that's just different about it, and it goes in a whole different direction, but in a subtle way, and then. Did a lot of twenty twenty one. He's like the same. We had the same motif. We just kept kind of mm-hmm. screwing with it more and more yeah. as the film got on. It was barely recognizable by the end. But and some of that in Twin Cities as well, where you start with something that's really feels really solid, but then the next time you hear it coming, it might start the same way, but then it, it kind of morphs into something else. I would always want that versus like you see some films where the same five notes come up in the, end, the exact same way, repeating the film. That's great for building a cohesive feeling but for me it's not as interesting as what charlie does which is like take something and you know you get the idea in your head once but you don't want to repeat it so you start you use the starting point the next time you do it and you go in a more interesting way then you use it again and it's even more interesting and there's a couple of tracks we used by the end of the film you're hearing it in a totally different variation as you first heard it but you can still kind of tie it back which gives the feeling of more of an arc to the film uh just from the musical standpoint yeah I, i'm kind of curious like how much of having variations is important for the filmmakers who are watching it so many times or if it's like would an audience member necessarily catch that they are slightly different i mean they they would probably assume they are different but like that's that would be kind of an interesting test is like 
I'm, I don't know. Like, mm-hmm. for me, it's good to change it up just because I like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And 2021, it was interesting watching that again after not, after like a couple of years after doing mm-hmm. the score. Because um, I did feel like it, it repeated things too often mm-hmm. that were a little too similar. But I don't know. I probably was talking to you about that, Mike, when we were sitting next to each other at the screening. Yeah, which um, is where I met you, actually. Yeah, it was yeah. at the 2021 screening. Yeah, yeah right. maybe if you're not king, I was an audience, you see. Maybe I, I just felt the subtlety because I was aware it was there. But yeah, it's a good point. If it's not different enough, maybe the audience doesn't register, like we were talking about these other things, that it's yeah. different. I don't know. It didn't get tedious for me, and it and it didn't in uh, Twin Cities either. In in fact, it, as I kept listening to it, I started, would start realizing like, oh, that's a development of this idea from back here. And it took me until oh, like okay. the second or third or fourth time sure. to really realize that, which I think is pretty, well, that's good. Is, is what you want. Yeah. Because you're, you're getting that effect without it being op, you yeah. know, obvious. And hopefully yeah, people does, won't actually think about the score at all. Yeah. Right. Probably would be the, the goal. Ideally. So. Yep. Yeah. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. that definitely does happen in movies where you're like, yep, here's that theme again. That we've heard <laughs> twenty times already. Yeah. yeah. Well, not only that, it's the same thing, but it's used in the same way. So it's like Jason was saying, which I'm big about too, is like the uh, the score telling you how to feel at any point in mm-hmm. time is when you know you've gone wrong. Mm-hmm. The same way of you know a screenwriting edict I like to follow is like you know if if what's going on on the screen is actually what you think is going on, you're screwed. That's mm-hmm. not. Yeah. That's the last thing you want. And the same thing goes with the score. You don't want to be pushing the audience to feel what they should already be feeling on their own. And the most powerful moments in film, I think, when you're not getting pushed, you're just getting there yourself because you're becoming invested in the whole thing by doing it that way. So, yep. Right. To me, a good film allows you to be an active audience right. member and keeps you engaged because you have to work a little bit and you have to kind of follow the dots that the filmmakers and the sound designers and composers and everything else have kind of put there for you, but not spoon-fed you. Right. Yep. I wanted. I had a question that I don't know if Charlie and I have ever even talked about in all our workings together, but how do you make a decision on instrumentation and arrangement versus actual, like, the notes and melodies? Where do you decide, like, I need to adjust the melody itself or the, the, the notes being played, or I need to adjust or add or subtract the instruments? Hmm. That's a good question. That is a good question. I don't think I've ever <laughs> consciously thought about that. Um, yeah, I think for well for me, like especially now that I'm doing MIDI stuff, I'll kind of like rough out the composition first to get the timing right with the scene, and then I'll tweak instruments later. So you usually you write it out on on one instrument. Or just um, on, on well, a piano or something like that. Or? Well, I guess that's not uh, totally how I do it because I usually like for Twin Cities, I I would find the sound that I want first, mm-hmm. and then play around with it, uh, record it. But then, I guess deciding when to add more layers is kind of like if I think a layer would help, then I'll add it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's a really bad answer, but uh, but yeah, that's, if I if it if I think it, it won't do much, then I'll try to not add it because mm-hmm. especially for film scoring, you don't want to 
overdo it because mm-hmm. there's a lot of other stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've done stuff too on both these films, especially the last film where you'd send me something with and without a layer, where you do like 50% of a layer. So he'd send me like the same thing, but it would have one was with the layer, one was without the layer, one was with the layer at 50%. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Which is yeah. Um, a great way to do it because mm-hmm. you could hear it, you know. Well, and, and on, uh, when we were working on the composition for the Beyond the Thrill, the skydiving documentary, sometimes there'd be just something in there that bugged me. And I was like, well, can you just mute that track? And I was like, okay, yeah. now I like it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anything that sounded like Zelda flutes <laughs> yeah. got cut. Yeah. <laughs> or, um, Too identifiable. Yep. That's Zelda. Yeah. I guess in that sense, it is sometimes good to overload it. Because you know that there might be some annoying things, and then you can just cut <laughs> yeah. them out, and hey, it works. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, that's that's maybe one thing that both of those films share is that we were conscious of making the instruments almost unidentifiable, so you didn't maybe have preconceived associations of like this is a guitar, mm-hmm. this is a piano. Mm-hmm. Except Twin Cities, of course, you were just saying gets into the guitar because you see a guitar. Yeah, but but I used also a lot of. Ebo with my guitars, so you wouldn't know they're a guitar right. because mm. yeah, I just Can you bought explain one. what an Ebo is yeah. to yeah, someone sure. who This so an Ebo is um, this thing that you put on your guitar, but it's kind of hovering over one string, and it makes the string vibrate on its own because this thing has some electromagnetic things going on. It's got like a nine volt battery in it, <laughs> so it's kind of like you're bowing the string, so it. There's no obvious, like, start or end to the note. And Jason convinced me to to get one for this, um, for both these scores, actually. I'm sending you, like, 45 G-chat messages. Yeah, like, probably. Uh, <laughs> Did you get the Ebo like yet? Yeah. But I'm glad you pushed me. Because, Classic Jason. Classic yeah. Jason. <laughs> do you have it now? So, like, even... <laughs> yeah, I do. Now I could... Now's the part in the podcast where you play the... Uh, Yep. Yeah, there you go. Track. Oh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> that is a really good strategy because you can get sort of synthy textures that aren't that won't necessarily sound like a straight up preset because yeah. you can you can vary exactly yeah. what's happening. Yeah. Yeah, and rarely, nice. like when I use a MIDI keyboard too, I'm just hitting the note and I don't really adjust it as right. a performer. Yep. But with the Ebo, I do feel like I'm actually constantly adjusting. Like if I was playing violin. Mm-hmm. Yep. And like the the scenes we were talking about that are kind of like anxious, where the main character is like getting stressed out. All I did for those scenes, well at first anyways was just an acoustic guitar with an ebo hmm. which you wouldn't think would be i didn't know that yeah <laughs> yeah they, they kind of amplified it was cool. plugged in no 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 it oh, just really? works yeah you just wow. put i just put a with mic, a mic up to it. it yeah well, and cool. and the thing that's kind of cool with the ebo is when you if you put more pressure on it then it'll start to rattle mm-hmm. so there's a little bit of a twangy rattle with it So we know now there's an Ebo on acoustic and electric, and then do you want to talk about any other things like how ma- how many layers deep? Mm-hmm. 
are the songs and how many different things uh, are in there. If you want to just give well, a quick breakdown. Yeah. Well, I, it became really obvious to me how many layers were in some of the tracks because um, Mike had asked for the all the stems because then uh, we're going to end up doing a surround mix of the film. And uh, so some of the music could be put into surround channels and stuff. So I broke it down as much as I could and each track I could figure out about four distinct layers. Hmm. But within those four layers, it'd be like, you know, so if there's an Ebo layer, there's maybe like four or five different Ebos going <laughs> as layers. So, uh, but yeah, each track I could figure out that there's at least some sort of bass layer and lots of synths of all different types. One of my favorite tracks, which we're calling Allegory, that one has kind of like an organ arpeggiating notes. And piano, which was just a sampled piano. That one's a pretty fun track to record because when I was recording the piano part, I I did three different layers, a really high layer, a mid layer, and then a real low bass layer. But I didn't actually plan out what I was going to do. I just kind of recorded random notes hmm. for each of those layers. But going off my intuition as I was hearing it, uh, so it wasn't completely random, <laughs> but I tried to not make a melody, at least, is what I was going for. Right. But then right. when you hear them all together, they mm -hmm. actually do kind of make a weird melody. scene one of the characters is explaining a story that they're writing and the other character is imagining that story playing out so you're truly in their head as they're imagining this scene and so the score kind of goes with you on that mm -hmm. into their imagination that's probably my favorite track in the film it's really amazing because it's it's super unique too i can't remember hearing something like that in the score and it's got all these different elements that you don't think will work together but they somehow do yeah like the percussion, I was a little bit worried that it would be hard to add percussion to that since it, there's like very little percussion in the, the entire score, too. Um, so I just tried to go with like almost as minimal as possible with like kind of a metronome sound.
do you find the the timing to a scene? Do you just intuitively kind of see where the edits happen or how, like the pace of the dialogue? Do you try, actually try to set a metronome to a scene? Uh, sometimes I start without actually paying attention to an, the metronome and just play along. And then maybe later I'll figure out what that actual timing mm -hmm. is and then put it to a metronome. Mm -hmm. um, but for Twin Cities, there are very few that actually used a metronome with because it's long, drawn-out pad sounds. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, it was fun because I could just like watch the actors and just go instinctively mm -hmm. where I thought, where things could start. Mm -hmm. Nice. Did you do each scene as a, as a separate session, or did you have one long session that was the entire movie? Uh, I had mostly separate sessions mm -hmm. just because... It would be too overwhelming, I think. Yeah, that's, that's easier, definitely. Yeah. But, like we were talking about earlier, when we had our scoring session and we, had, we realized, like, oh, these scenes have the same mood, then it's real mm -hmm. easy to just copy the session right. and use the same instruments and everything. Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. so then once I got all the individual cues set, I would put them into my master session and that was a good test to see, like, where is the music happening and which ones are similar. And mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Broad question, what what are some of your guys' favorite movie scores? Well, Because I know, Mike, you're a musician also. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I have a whole list. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mine? came up with because oh, I, nice. oh, I got the question uh, in advance. But Nice. There's some pretty obvious ones. Uh, Morricone's score for The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. That's kind of a no-brainer. Um, probably, if I had to pick a favorite film score, I would pick Donnie Darko. Hmm. And Michael Andrews scored that. And actually, your music for this film reminds me a lot hmm. of that one. Oh, thanks. Oh, yeah, that's a, um, I didn't even think about that, but that's true. Yeah, this score... I, I can't remember what the Donnie Darko's like actually yeah and it's it's a little bit all over the place because because some of it has a bit of a brighter flavor to it but a lot of it has you know sort of something slightly askew there are different layers of ominous feelings dread a lot of dreamlike stuff a lot of sense in that one too a lot of sense mm. yeah sense and piano hmm. yeah like twin cities reminds me of kind of a fusion of that and uh and i and i, I mean this is a compliment uh tangerine dreams score for uh, risky business yeah yeah i, love it. <laughs> I had the same <laughs> lot well the, the track we we're just talking about really yeah. reminds me of that yeah in a, great, in a great way because that's one of the great scores ever well and to bring it full circle too drive was actually the the score of purpose for drive um was Influenced by Tangerine Dream is kind of like a throwback score. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Hmm. So it's all yeah. sort of in the same oral family. Yep, yeah. totally. Yeah. Um, I, I really like a lot of the scores that Nick Cave and Warren Ellis are doing. Have you heard any of that stuff? Mm, no. Really simple, kind mm -hmm. of folky stuff, but really, really effective. I, I've actually, I have a bunch of the albums. I've only seen one of the movies, which is The Road, which is not my favorite movie. It is one of my favorite books, but... <laughs> um, wasn't nuts about the movie, but the score is quite beautiful, and and these other scores that they've done, they're just there's really lovely, evocative, simple things. Um, I like the stuff that uh, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross are doing, uh, especially um, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. I thought that was terrific, mm -hmm. um, and Atticus Ross's work on uh, Love and Mercy was great too, which a lot of which is uh, sort of montages of Beach Boys outtakes and what have you, but it's really, really effectively. 
put together. Uh, Brian Reitzel's score for the Hannibal TV series. I don't know if you guys have <laughs> heard that, but it's... No. I haven't gotten. It's super noisy and just really abrasive and bizarre, and uh, apparently hardly any of it is synth. It's all just bizarre metal instruments and things <laughs> being blown and scraped and all sorts of horrible stuff. But it's really, really effective and really beautiful. Um, the score for the film Moon by Clint mm-hmm. Menzel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one of my favorites. I, I just love that music. It's uh, it's very dreamlike and very appropriate. Um, I'm almost done. <laughs> um, uh, Toru Takamitsu's score for the film Kwaidan, a Japanese film from about 1964, I think, is one of my favorites. Uh, very, very simple. A lot of the time, it's just like these, these weird percussion instruments, these real staccato, very brief cues. A lot of the time, you don't know if it's a sound effect or if it's music or what's going on. And sort of the flip side of that, uh, I really like, <laughs> don't laugh, the music for uh, the Saw movies, um, <laughs> <laughs> where it's just so completely over the top and just like kitchen sink. And, and it just seems like too much. It just seems like it's, it's just so dense. Um, and I've read interviews with uh, Charlie Clauser, the composer, he used to be one of Trent Reznor's worker bees. And and he said, yeah, you know, the, the director just kept pushing me to put more and more and more stuff in there. Because a lot of the time it's like you're hearing, you know, the washing machine in the next room or something. It's just like, is that part of the score? Like, what is, what is going on? But it's all intentional, apparently. It's just like so tricked out. It's ridiculous. Um, so I have to uh, I have to appreciate that. Cool. So those are mine. Good list. Well, <laughs> I guess mine's kind of short because I didn't think about it too much. But, um, <laughs> uh, it's John Bryan's scores are mm. awesome. Like, mm-hmm. and I had these on my iPod. You know, like listen to them tons of times. But Eternal Sunshine and Spotless Mind, which is one of my favorite movies, mm-hmm. and Punch Drunk Love. Yeah, yeah that's on like, my list. Yeah, yeah, like one of the most inspiring tracks from that movie is there's like this really weird atonal percussive mm-hmm. thing that's that's like building up tension during this entire long scene of my wife couldn't even handle that scene because yeah. of that music yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she's like i'm so stressed out yeah <laughs> it's yeah, yeah. so stressful and i don't know if i actually noticed it when i was watching the movie but it is really blatantly weird mm-hmm. and that's definitely a score that does draw attention to itself. yeah yeah and it I keep wanting to do something like that in <laughs> these movies, but nothing has really called for it. <laughs> so that's all I can think of at the moment. But Dave? You um, well, I, you mentioned um, Paul Thomas Anderson. I, I, I think the There Will Be Blood score is one of the best I've heard. Yeah. I mean, it's just so unique. Yeah, it's it's yeah. really good. gets back to my earlier point about this score, and there's not what you'd expect it to be, but it's still effective. So whenever, anytime you get to that point, it's amazing, and that score is incredible. Yeah. It almost gives you the sense of like the oil under the yeah. earth or something. That's what the score alludes to. It's mm-hmm. just this yeah. demonic force under the ground right. or something. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, it's stuff that you would not even think it would be, should be there. But then you listen to it and like, wow, that somehow is working. It's calling attention to itself maybe, but it's not in a cliche way. So I, I love that score. I think I think I might have sent you this early on, Charlie, but uh, the score that I thought was most similar to the score I was looking for here was um, David Gordon Green's first film, George Washington, which has got a lot of the, some of the similar, I'd call my warm, sad 
<laughs> score. <laughs> that's like, I think I said to that earlier, I'm like, hmm. the, the film is okay, but the score is incredible. It's one of those films. And for this film, I thought that was a great reference point. Um, he's got another film, um, All the Real Girls, which has also got some great oh, yeah. scoring yeah. interludes in a sort of a similar vein. I, I think I sent you some of the last film. Yeah. So these are all top of mind because these are all samples I've sent to Charlie in the last four or five years. Um, <laughs> so those are great reference points for the last two films. Stuff that I've always loved, like Taxi Driver score, I thought was incredible. Who's yeah. the composer of that again? I'm forgetting. I don't know. Oh, shoot. I don't, I don't, I'm not good at composer trivia. Yeah. <laughs> Cliff Martinez was the Drive composer, by the way. Yeah, okay. I like yeah. the Drive score a lot. Um, the other one I would say is... Um, Bernard, Bernard Herman. Yes, that's who oh. I was. That's, oh, like, okay. that's one of the best scores ever. I, I also like David Lynch stuff a lot. Um, I don't know who the composer is, but um, both Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive. Um, yeah, those the scores. Angelo, are, what is that guy? Yeah, and they do some really interesting stuff too. Angelo Baldomati, yeah, something like that. Yeah. There's a little extra on one of his films where they show how he scored. They scored, and it's just it's like tubes and microphones in the weirdest places, yep. and he they just inventing shit on the fly. Yep. And uh, again, I, I I love those scores where it's just totally different than we ever heard before. So that's why I like that one too. So that's my short list. I can go on and on, but that's those are the top ones. Jason, Punch Trunk Love is definitely on my list because it does have those like really abrasive percussion stuff, but it also has this very light, very romantic kind of mm-hmm. sweeping, yeah, flowery, bright songs too that are just like melt your heart. Yeah. And they they have like an overture in that movie too because mm-hmm. it starts yeah. out with just the colors, colors on the screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, all the themes from the show are in that too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very classic. Fargo, I think, is a great score. Mm-hmm. Um, is that uh, Carter Burwell? Oh boy, it probably know. is. I think I'm ninety nine percent sure it would be. <laughs> it's kind of like... I got I got my laptop. Jeff Russo is who comes up. Oh really? That's the TV guy. Oh, oh wow. I, I interviewed him. Yeah, really. Yeah, there you go. That, well, was, that was cool. Well, who's the movie composer? I think he's Carter Burwell. Carter Burwell. Yeah. Carter Burwell. Excuse me. Um, I love the um, Beasts of Southern Wild score. Oh yeah, that's killer. It's just like the theme is so like triumphant and big. It's like almost like a march with all those horns and stuff. Uh, Foxcatcher score. Is a really interesting one too because there's just, it's like a hundred piece orchestra and it feels like a tiny score. Really? It's so mm. weird. Mm. Like it's a huge score, but sometimes they're all just like playing one note and <laughs> I don't know. It's and the and the movie feels so quiet and the score, you almost don't think about and and until you go like look at the soundtrack and realize how much music is in that mm-hmm. film. But it all, mm. it all kind of weaves very naturally into the sound design mm-hmm. in the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but when I looked at some of the behind the scenes, I was like, "This is an enormous orchestra, and it feels hmm. like sometimes just like the tiniest, most subliminal score." So huh. I think it seems like a waste of a hundred orchestra members. Oh, but, I, <laughs> I, oh, but it counts score. somewhere. I bet. Yeah. Sure. Um, and I love the Secret of Kells too. That's a sweet movie. If you haven't seen it, beautiful animation. Mm, haven't. No. But a really cool kind of dreamy score. Hmm. Cool. So, that's my list. Any final thoughts from you guys? On, uh... I just want to plug just how important sound is in, in film, and it's often neglected in independent film or lower-budget films. 
but to me as the editor of the film you know there's a certain kind of leap of faith and imagining as i'm editing because you are putting together shots with the sound that don't the sound doesn't always sound consistent the room tone changes you know i add quick little crossfades in there just to help my own brain see that the edit's going to work but it was really fun to watch it back with the smooth sound design and Mm -hmm. and to have the reassurance that okay those edits do work (laughs) when the sound is smooth and just how crucial that is and so what in a a film that maybe neglected sound might look like bad editing might just be a bad sound Mm -hmm. design or sound mix Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. invest in your sound and save some money for your post sound because it makes all the difference in the world especially a low budget Lower budget indie like this. Um, just a disclosure: this was made for less than ten million dollars. Um, <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, <laughs> just, just under. Just got it under there, um, <laughs> but uh, with the rebate. No, um, that that's always the first thing you notice. And I think we'd all agree. If you go to see a film, a lower budget film, it's not from the studio. It's like the th- if something that if something technically sucks, ninety five percent of the time it's the sound. You know, mm-hmm. it's not too hard to get a good camera to light it okay. You know. But the sound is really hard to pull off, and Mike did a great job on this, and it's a big part of you know why it seems like a much higher budget film than I think that that it is. I know that it's, <laughs> I, know, I know it's not a huge budget film, but it, it feels like it now. Like Jason said, it's it's, it's so awesome to watch the film now and see all these elements come together: the sound design and the score. It's exciting, even though I've seen it now many times, to watch it all at once because it's like you're used to watching it with all these things not there, and it feels like a whole different experience. You know, you're not gritting your teeth as you get through it. You're like, oh, this is actually I'm enjoying watching this, <laughs> not yeah. not uh, having a panic attack every five minutes. You know, <laughs> right. um, so that's the fun part at this point is like to see all this work come together um, on all these elements, um, and I, I think it's been a, a great experience. And you learn a lot in every film, and um, you kind of learn by doing. And I, I've learned a ton just on this film from all three of these guys just on how to make films better and we'll know that more next time and hopefully it'll be easier next time it's never easy it's always hard as hell <laughs> and then you get done it's like when a kid and you're like I'm never gonna f- do that again and then <laughs> you take a break and then you like oh there's an idea I might want to do mm-hmm. yeah, but it takes a while so it might be a few months before I want to do this again but, <laughs> but <laughs> you got half the other script for the next script yeah, right like, yeah. exactly it's like yep. I'm glad I had the kid I don't want to do that again but uh, <laughs> so anyway <laughs> alright well on that note thanks uh, thanks guys for coming over to the bedroom studio here thanks for having us yeah check out Twin Cities on Facebook we'll be launching the trailer soon or it might be launched by the time this podcast airs yeah and uh, keep an eye out for the movie yeah thanks guys yeah thank you thank you there you have it thanks to my guests Jason P. Schumacher of Grey Duck Productions David Ash of 355 Productions and Mike Hallenbeck of Junior Birdman Audio for more info about our film plus a list of our favorite film scores we mentioned visit composerquest.com slash twin cities Remember to check back in September for the Composer Quest World Tour. And in the meantime, feel free to get in touch with me by emailing me, charlie at composerquest.com, or find Composer Quest on Facebook or Twitter. Now, time for another. Throughout this season of Composer Quest, the idea of drone based film scoring has come up a few times probably because this style is so useful for film composers. 
The ambient, slow-moving nature of these cues can easily blend into almost any scene or transition and provide a subconscious emotional undercurrent. As Jason Schumacher mentioned in our talk, a drone cue could be made by a 100-piece orchestra like in Foxcatcher, or a drone could be created by something as simple as a single synth note. In creating the score for Twin Cities, my usual approach to this style of composing was to use three or four synth layers at a time. I'll give you a quick breakdown of one of my cues as an example. First, here's the layer I created using an ebo with my electric guitar. Next, a synth that acts kind of like a bass part. And finally, a slow-moving melody line. Here's what they sound like together. The director, Dave Ash, mentioned that for several scenes he wanted scoring that felt sad but warm at the same time. Ambient cues like this one were my answer to that request. But this cue is quite a bit more on the sad, hopeless end of the spectrum versus a more hopeful cue like this one. Since both of these cues use the same instruments in the same slow style, we have to assume that it's the different chords that create the subtle differences of emotion. If we listen back to a sample of the first cue, it's clearly a C minor chord. And the second cue clearly sounds like C major. Here they are back to back. When you boil it down, it's really true that minor feels sad and major feels happy. But there are some subtle things going on in these drones that give them more flavor than just minor and major. In the sad cue, one thing that really sells the hopelessness is the way the slow-moving melody works. In the first part of the phrase, we hear the melody rise up from the minor third scale degree to the fourth, as if there's some hope. but then it falls down to a painful second and further downward to the root note at the end of the phrase. It's these non-chord tones of the fourth and the second that tug us in one direction or another. 
They're really the spice of these drones. Before I added this melody, it felt a little too stagnant and wasn't really working for their director. Here's what that original one sounded like. But when I added that melody, everyone was sold on this cue. Now the more hopeful C major cue is also more complex than just a C major chord. It has lots of non-chord tones gradually fading in and out. I should mention that when I'm composing in this style, I usually go by instinct rather than anything pre-planned or any conscious music theory decisions. As I've said before, this style for me is more like painting than my more rigid notes on paper type composing. So it's a little weird to analyze this from a traditional music theory perspective, but I'll give it a shot. I think the key to understanding why this sounds hopeful is the bass line. For one, the lowest note we hear is a low C which forms a solid root for all the swirling chords above it. Then, the way the bass moves upward stepwise feels like it's rising and making progress. When it does eventually fall, it falls back down to that comforting low C. This same kind of upward movement is also happening in the higher melody part. At the same time as these moving parts, there's also a constant soothing chord going on, which is D, E, and G. By itself, this chord is ambiguous as to whether it's major or minor, but combined with the C bass note, it's definitely a nice warm C major chord with an added second, which always helps things sound magical. These two cues were kind of the emotional extremes of my drones in this film, from hopeless to hopeful. Now let's take a listen to two cues that fall somewhere in the middle of this emotional spectrum. Here's the first cue for a transitional scene of one character entering a church. It's somewhat hard to pinpoint if this cue is happy or sad, 
which is exactly what the director wanted. He knew he didn't want to handhold the audience and tell them exactly how to feel, just that they should feel something. With this first cue in your ear, let's listen to the second cue and see how you feel. Did it feel just a shade darker and less optimistic? That was my intent. Let's listen again to the start of the first cue. Now the start of the second cue. They sound almost identical, except in the second cue there's a low F that sounds a little bit dark and out of place. The first cue also brings in this low F, but the final chord reveals that we're in F major, so everything's good. In contrast, the final chord of the second cue makes it into a surprise F minor. The audience might not realize that these two scenes are connected musically, and ideally they won't be thinking about the music at all. But doing these kind of subtle variations is a great way to make a score more cohesive without simply copying and pasting the cue into different parts of the film. Once you start playing around with this kind of tonal scoring, you'll be able to see how small changes, like even changing one note, can help you find the exact mood you're going for. Thanks for listening, and remember that you can find all these music production lessons as their own sub-podcast. Just search for Charlie's Music Production Lessons in your podcast app of choice, or go to composerquest.com slash cmpl. I'll leave you now with the final cue from the film, which is inspired by the temp score from Drive. <laughs>